Hey, Heath. Hey, Raf. How are you? I am awesome. How are you? Yep, I'm really good. Thanks. Excited to have another conversation with you. Yeah, me too. So um, today we're going to talk about should your knees go in in a squat? And if they don't, does that mean you've got weak or underactive glutes? And all the end of the universe is imminent. Yes, the end is nigh. <laughs> <laughs> and dear listener, TLDR, too long, didn't read. Uh, the answer to both those questions is no. It doesn't matter if your knees go in your squat and it doesn't necessarily mean you've got weak or underactive glutes. But we will explore the nuances and the many uh, possible explanations for why your knees might go in in a squat that have nothing to do with having weak glutes uh, and uh, why it probably doesn't have anything to do with your injury risk or glutes. So, yeah. So why do we care about this? Why should we? Why is this a conversation worth having, do you think? For you and I or for the industry at large? I mean – same, same, isn't it? Like we're we're here talking for the industry at large. Yeah, yeah. So, well, what I learned and eventually let go of was that it, if your knees came in, as you said, your glutes were underactive. But then the next question is, why do you care? Yeah. If your glutes are underactive, and but apparently, when your glutes are underactive, you get headaches. Like when your glutes are underactive there's something just inherently bad about that and that if they are more active, that will resolve things and that then being more active will be demonstrated by your knees not going in over your toes. But, you know, it, the, embedded in that is that it's more safe or less dangerous to have mm. your knees come in um, mm. and also that it's a more efficient way to lift, that I guess you're more powerful if you don't let your knees come in, but they're not the same thing, right? Like. And I, uh, one of the yeah, am I, is, that's one of the things that I'd like to unpack. And the other, the other thing that I've, I think we've got to touch on is uh, for you, you, you. When we talked off air before, you were talking about it as aesthetics that you, the the better looking movement, whatever the hell that means, knees out, knees out. We've, we've decided that knees out's the better looking movement is somehow inherently safer and more efficient. Yeah. But the other thing I want to make sure we spend some time on is uh, that, you know, there are efficient ways to generate force. Like a deadlift is a really efficient way for a human body to generate force, right? Because your joints are all in mid-range. You've got two hands holding the bar. You've got two feet on the floor. But that's not to say that you should that, – that inefficient ways of moving load are inherently dangerous, no, that's true. And also, I think there are layers of assumption underneath that idea that are probably that I would disagree with in question. So the idea that there is one most efficient way of moving uh, in say if just if we're thinking about squats, you know, is there a single best way to do squats? Should your knees be in a certain position, hips be in a certain position, feet be a certain distance apart, et cetera? You know, like, is there a certain best technique? And the answer to that, I mean, if you think about it for about 15 seconds and realize that people have different length torsos relative to their femurs, different length femurs relative to their tibias, different depth and orientation of hip sockets, different alignment of femoral necks, you know, like, 
we are not shaped the same. So therefore, if there is one movement pattern, one way of squatting that is biomechanically optimal for you, given your particular femur length to tibia length to torso length ratio, your particular length of femoral neck, your alignment of your hip sockets, et cetera, why would that be the same exact movement pattern that's optimal for me with longer femurs, shorter tibias, a longer torso, deeper hip sockets, and all of the rest of it? Like, it just doesn't make sense at all when you think about it. There's not one optimal way of squatting. You know, we're going to cluster around some average, you know, some median, you know, like probably it's not the case that for anyone squatting with your feet, you know, triple shoulder width is going to be optimal, you know, and probably with your ankle bones hard up against each other is not going to be optimal, right? But if you go anywhere from like, you know, feet hip distance apart to feet double hip distance apart, you know, there's going to be someone in the world for whom each of those distances is optimal, you know, given their particular geometry and whatever, you know, so there's going to be some range that is optimal. Anyway, so the notion of one single optimal technique that we can sort of impart upon everybody and go, oh, your knees are too far apart or you're, you know, whatever, these are too close together, or you're leaning too far forward, or you're not leaning forward far enough, or what you know, like yes, there is an optimal technique for each person, but it's not the same optimal technique. Hmm. And that's well, all right. And then the optimal technique is assuming you want to lift as much load as possible. Like, is that the par- Is that the context there? Because well, um, optimal technique is going to vary with load. So the optimal technique for uh, squatting body weight is probably not the same optimal technique for squatting, you know, your maximum one repetition, you know, strength. So like, you know, say, I don't know, double your body weight in a barbell on your back, you know, you'll use a different technique than squatting body weight. It's not the same thing, not the same skill. Um, and we know we know this actually, there are, there are, so, you know, this is one thing that, that the literature shows in a number of different, um, movements. So there's some, there's some, uh, there's some studies in squatting and there's also some studies in bench press that I'm aware of that show that even in the same movement, so in a bench press or a squat, the activation and the, the force production, sorry, not the activation, the force production of different muscles changes as you change the load. So for instance, in a bench press, when you do it at a lighter load, uh, it is, um, gee, I can't remember, like I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's um, it was something like the pecs are more, uh, you know, do more, most of the work, right, at a relatively light load. Whereas as you increase the load, the contribution of the deltoids increases. So the heavier it is, the more percentage of the force is produced by your deltoids, right? So in a in a light in a light bench press, it's like I, you know, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but let's just say it's like fifty percent pecs, fifty percent deltoids, right? Whereas in a in a heavy bench press, that's you know very close to your maximum, it might be like thirty percent pecs and seventy percent deltoids, right? Again, numbers are probably wrong, but 
um, you know, just the deltoids contribute relatively more as you increase the load. And it's the same in a squat. Uh, I'm going to pull up a study which so um, i just i just wanted to, i know that's we're on the edge of a rabbit hole looking down the mm, hole and we're not going to mm. go too deep into it but just on that idea that as the as the total weight being moved increases the mm. percentage of load of force generation across different muscles changes but Correct. just so in that when it's when it's 50 50 delts and pecs then it goes to 70, 50, and obviously those numbers, we're just making them up, yeah. delts and pecs, as the load increases. The um, the actual amount of force being generated by the pecs would stay roughly the same, right? So it's like as the load yeah. increases, yeah. So it's more – and so the idea there might be that your body, your system uses the most uh, available or – you know, the, the most optimized muscle for it first, and then as it needs more, it pulls in more team members and they increase their contribution. Right, and we can we can uh, think about that in a squat as well. There's a couple of studies, uh, one from 2012 by Bryant and et al., another one from uh, Larson et al. more recently that looked at squatting um, and measured the force production, so not the activation, but the force production of the quads and the glutes and they measured it in different at different loads. So um, what they found was that basically at relatively low loads um, – What would you call a relatively low load just for the, for the listeners? Something like 50% of their one rep max. So this is a load where you could do like 30 plus reps, you know, like this is the relatively light load, you know. Um, uh, so, at you know, at relatively low loads – even at such a low load, the force production in the quads is maximal, right? So even at a relatively low load like that, your your quads are producing as much force as they can produce. And then as you increase the load, the quads don't work harder because they're already working flat out. What As you increase the load, what happens is the glutes start working harder, right? So the quads keep working flat out. And as you increase the load, you just get more and more and more and more contribution from the glutes until when you're doing like over a hundred percent of your maximum, like when you're doing like a, they call it an eccentric overload. Overload. Yep. Yep. Um, that's when where you, where you can glute, put the weight down, but you can't pick it up. Right. That's where, you know, where your glute contribution is maximized. So basically this is, this, this is not like giving people a different instruction, squeeze your glutes or anything like that. It's just like adding more weight to the bar increases the relative contribution of the glutes, you know, to the to the force production in the movement, right? So 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 we have this we have this evidence in different exercises that that says that muscle contribution to a movement is load specific, right? So there is it seems like from this literature that there is can some I, um, kind yep, go, sorry go on. Well I was just going to say there's there's some kind of efficiency you know, that is load dependent, right? So the skill of squatting body weight, right, is mainly quad dominant, okay? And the skill of squatting really heavy is still working your quads really effectively and also it's glute dominant. You're working, the you know, the glutes are producing double the amount of force in a super heavy squat than the, the quads are. Whereas in a bodyweight squat, the quads are producing more force than the glutes, right? Yeah. 
So we should stay there for a moment because, you know, what you just did was pull open a huge Pandora's box of Pilates conversation, right? So you just said that in a 50% of one RM squat, you are by definition quad dominant, <clears throat> you know, and dear listener, if you're in good company, if you've had the conversation about with a client or a fellow <clears throat> Pilates instructor about what quad dominant is and what that means. So, you know, Raph, I think we should take a moment and pause and see that. Are we going to doff our hats and doff our hats <laughs> to the quads and say we all love quads and then they're, what are they, the biggest, the largest muscle group in the body as opposed to the largest single muscle, which is the lat. And their job is to generate a lot of force a lot of the time. Like the idea that you should be down regulating, if that's the term, the use of your quads and up regulating the use of your squats. You don't need to do that because the system will do that as you increase the load. It, it's, it's built in. Like, is that kind of the idea that you've just touched on? Yeah. Well, if you wanted, yeah. So if you wanted to, well, if, if you wanted to, for whatever reason, you know, maximize the load on the glutes and the work in the glutes. Okay. One way that you could do that would be add more load to your squat. Right. As opposed to clench your glutes before you lift. Correct. So that would increase the activation of the glutes, but wouldn't necessarily increase any strengthening of the glutes because it wouldn't add more load to the glutes because you're not actually adding more load to the to the body, right? You're not adding, you're not picking up a heavier kettlebell or a heavier barbell or a heavier spring or whatever. You're just picking up the same amount of load, but you're just clenching harder, right? So essentially uh, the stimulus for, and we've talked about this before, but it's, I think it's worth mentioning, is that this, the, the, the primary stimulus for strengthening the body and a muscle is, is a high level of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers. So we have to create a lot of tension on that muscle. Now, tension comes from loading a muscle, right? So if I, if I just tense my biceps without like having anything in my hand and just like, you know, tense my biceps, like, yeah, the biceps, the, we use the word tensed, right? But there is n virtually no tension on that muscle compared to if I pick up a 20 kilo dumbbell and try and curl it, right? There's a lot of tension on my biceps because the weight of the dumbbell is pulling it, right? So mm. the muscle contracts with way more force when there's a heavy load that you're working against compared to when you're just tensing it, right? So if I'm doing a body weight squat where my glutes would normally be working at like, you know, 20% of their maximum, okay, and I just simply squeeze my butt as hard as possible, yeah, it'll be activated at 100%, right? But it'll still be loaded at 20%, right? So now I've got 100% of my muscle fibers in my glute lifting a load that 20% of the fibers could easily lift, right? So each fiber only has 20% of its maximum load on it, right? So there is not a high level of mechanical tension on each fiber. So that is not a stimulus for strengthening. Yeah. So simply, simply tensing your muscle whilst you're lifting the same light load <laughs> doesn't increase the strengthening effect of that exercise. If you want to, if you want to, increase the strengthening effect, you've got to add more load. Sorry. No, no. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's well said. And so I'm, I'm just going to keep pushing out that. So if we're going to this example of where the quads are dominant in particular load cycles or particular um, amounts of load, 
and the glutes increase their contribution as the load increases. If we come back to that quad dominant 50% of 1RM, mm-hmm. where your quads are, I'm sorry, I've already forgotten the number, responsible for X percentage of the lift. If you willfully squeeze your glutes, does that reduce the amount of load the quads are working or is it something to do with the the nature of the load and the lift? Will the quads go to the same amount of work and you're just adding a little bit of butt squeeze to it? I'm thinking of the people out there who might be thinking, oh, what if I, if I squeeze my glutes, will it reduce the work in the quads? No, it'll probably increase it. Uh, so what we see is like, you know, and you know, you know this from your own, uh, probably just experience in life. Okay. When you tense one muscle, it makes it, it basically, you automatically tense the muscles around that area, right? It's like, if I say to you, you know, clench your external obliques, but not your internal obliques, it's like, that's really freaking hard to do. Or you even know? biceps and triceps, right? If you right. Can't, you can't do biceps, not triceps. Right. When you contract your biceps, if your arm doesn't immediately, like if your fist doesn't hit your shoulder, when you do that, it's because you're co-contracting your triceps, right? That's why your elbow does. If you can contract your biceps without moving your arm, you, by definition, you're co-contracting the muscles on the opposite side of the joint as well, right? So it's really, it's, it's natural to tense, you know, multiple muscles when you tense one muscle. It's like, it's very, very, very hard to isolate muscles. It's a very, very difficult skill to learn for most people. So yeah, so the chances are in your tense, the glutes, you're probably increasing activation in the hamstrings, the quads, the abs, the hip flexors. Yeah. The, okay, you know. great. So when you do that, to the idea that you explained clearly before, if you increase activation, which is not the same thing as increasing load, you're spreading the load that you are moving across more sets of muscle fibers, you're distributing the load, in fact, so you're reducing the strengthening effect across that. Yeah, correct. I mean, just imagine like you're doing bicep curls, right, with one arm, okay, with a dumbbell. And then you go, oh, well, if I did, if I picked up this same dumbbell with both my arms, I would get twice as much strengthening because I'd be strengthening both my biceps. Yeah. Well, except that now you've just halved the load on each arm, right? So you're now you're getting a half as much stimulus on each arm you're not getting the same stimulus on both arms. You're getting half as much on both arms. So, it, and like, and then if you're walking across the gym and you're like, oh, Raph, I see you're doing bicep curls. Let me help you. Like, we'll both get stronger at the same time. You're like, okay, now there's four arms curling the one dumbbell that hasn't changed in weight. It's, it hasn't got heavier. It's still the same, you know, one kilo dumbbell. And like, now there's four arms lifting that up. Are we going to get four arms get stronger? No, there's now just a quarter of the load on each arm. So it's like the more muscle fibers you engage without increasing the load, all you're doing is spreading the same load across more and more and more and more muscle fibers and decreasing the load on each muscle fiber, right? So if you want to get more load on the muscle fibers, you've got to have the same number of muscle fibers activated, but more load on them. So you've got right. to get a bigger dumbbell. That's what you, or a heavier spring or a heavier flex band or whatever, you know, you've got to add more load. You've got to add more load. And then in just in terms of rubber hitting the road for, for instructors out there who might still be thinking in terms of, I need to tell people to engage a particular muscle. Maybe it's the glutes, like squeeze your glutes before you lift. Uh-huh. What we've, what you've just explained is that by doing, using that cue, you're actually reducing the strengthening effect of the thing that you're doing because you're spreading the load rather than letting the muscles take the, me- the tension that's available to them in that lift. 
Yeah. I don't know if you're reducing it. I think you're probably just, you're certainly not increasing it. Hmm. And you're probably just increasing the perceived effort without hmm. increasing the stimulus for strengthening. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah, because the load hasn't changed. So the stimulus for strengthening should be similar. And in a squat like that where you, where you your glutes have got minimal stimulation if you're doing like a bodyweight squat, it's yeah, they're not the best exercise for glutes, I think. But uh, the quads will be still be working hard. Still be good exercise for quads. So I want to get, I want to move on to this idea of, you know, when you said like if people are queuing to, to activate the glutes before a squat, like I think, you know, for some people it's because they think that will, you know, the goal is to work the glutes more, you know. Um, and, but for other people, it's, it's a safety thing or it's like a correct technique thing or it's a protecting the knee from coming inwards thing, you know, like, so pre squeeze your butt or make sure you activate your butt in this squat to keep your knees out because, you know, the, the glutes externally rotate and abduct the hip. They bring the knees out to the side as well as extending the hip. Uh, and so we, we have this notion that your knees should go out to the side, you know, push outwards in a squat because your glutes are powering the mus- the movement and your glutes are an abductor and external rotator. Right? And so if your knees go in, doesn't that mean that your glutes are turning off? Because if your knees are going inwards and your glutes are pulling outwards, well, doesn't that mean that like the glutes are, aren't pulling outwards, you know? And that, you know, that does make sense kind of superficially, you know, and I believe that for quite a long time. Um, but when you actually learn and understand the anatomy and think about it just for just a minute or two, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, and also there's some science that says it's not, it's not the case. So the thing is though, so, all right. So if you, if you're standing up out of a squat and your knees go inwards as you stand up, all right. And, but you keep, standing up, right? You keep standing up. So you don't like, as your knees go in, you don't fall back down again. You're like you, you keep rising, right? Well, what's lifting you? You know, is it some magical force? Like ooh, the spirits are lifting. No, it's your quads and your glutes and your ductor magnus and probably a bit of calf and a bit of other stuff as well. But basically those three major muscles. And, and you know, so, and and you might think even superficially, oh, like, well, okay, but what if the glutes were totally turned off? Couldn't the quads do it by themselves? Yeah, they probably could lift you out of a body weight squat if your quads are reasonably strong. They probably could lift you out of a body weight squat without your glutes doing pretty much of anything. But if you uh, just go and you know jump on YouTube and type in, you know, world champion powerlifter squat or something like that, or um. There's there's one which I'll link to in the show notes, Leah Bavoli. She is freaking awesome. She's a female lifter in the 65 kilo class, I think. So she weighs under 65 kilo. Uh, there's a brilliant video of her squatting 200 kilos. And like, you know, if you've ever st- stood under a barbell, right, that is just an inconceivable amount of weight. You know, it's just like, you know, that is more than triple body weight. Mm. It's just, it's just, back squat. it's just crazy. It's just a crazy amount of weight. Now, so when she squats, her knees go in quite, you know, in quite a marked fashion, right? 
Now, when when Lyra Bavali is, you know, winning the world powerlifting championships, squatting triple, more than triple her body weight, okay, and her knees go in in a squat, is that because her glutes turned off? You know, I don't think so. Could could she lift that weight without her glutes? <laughs> right. No. I don't think so. So, 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 you know, is, so it just, it's not plausible. It's not plausible that the, you know, your glutes turn off in the middle of a squat. Now that, that point in a squat where your knees tend to go in, okay, is it quite a specific point? It's like, it's just above parallel. Right, it's like when your thighs are parallel with the floor. That's what we call parallel. Okay, so it's just above the parallel point is what we call a sticking spot in the squat. So, like if you fail in a squat, like if you do so many squats that you can't do another one, where you fail will be just above parallel. Right, or just in that sticking spot because that is the point where you've got the maximum moment arm for your quads and glutes to work against. It's like you've got the poorest leverage in the squat in that point mechanically you're you're least powerful in that position um so if you were if you were to squat like a quarter squat you know like start with your legs straight and squat down like just a quarter of the distance to the floor you could squat like four times the amount that you could squat if you went below parallel right because the sticking spot is just you've got you've got a lot more leverage the load has a lot more leverage against you right so that's the sticking spot yeah the seesaw is longer the, the horizontal distance from your knee to your hip is longest when your thigh is parallel with the floor, right? And therefore, the load has the greatest, greatest leverage to pull you downwards, and your muscles have the least leverage to pull you upwards at that same point. So, yeah, so that's where the knees tend to go in, is that sticking spot, okay, right round about legs are parallel. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are a few reasons that I've got on my list of what that could explain, you know, individually or collectively, why Lia Bavoli's knees go in when she's lifting three point three times her body weight, um, which just blows me away every time I say it. Um, right, but I'm just going to pull you back. Mind blowing as it is, that's presumably her one RM. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> give or take. <laughs> right, and so then in terms of like as it applies to lunges on the reformer just like just just to just touch on that it's it's just uh like it there's no question that what what am sorry what am i trying to catch you up on here because you you you're referencing a elite world class world champion lifter so just to catch the thought of well that's all right for her but what about the people I work with in my Pilates class? And, and I guess what I wanted to touch on is it's, it's, that is, that is an extremely heavy load for that elite lifter. And, but the, the reason she got there is she trained over time. She's not just a freak of nature. She's probably genetically gifted as well, but she's also trained consistently over a long period of time. And she's managed the load that she's putting into her system. And that's, that's the key, correct? It's not like, I know I'm stating the obvious, but she didn't wake up one day and just go, I'm going to lift three times my body weight. She's built that up over time and her system has become skilled at lifting heavy loads, which is essentially what you're practicing. If you're a deconditioned new to Pilates client who struggles with 10 lunges on a half spring, 
you're still doing the same thing. You're practicing the skill of being strong, starting where you are. Right. And it yeah. is a skill. And there are, as you get stronger, there are physiological changes that happen inside your body. You, you, uh, your muscles get bigger. You get more cross-link, um, proteins between your adjacent muscle fibers. Your tendons get thicker and stiffer. You know, like there are, there are physiological changes in your body that contribute to increasing strength. And a very significant contributor to increased strength is increased skill. So, you, you know, if you've never like done a barbell squat, you might be thinking like, oh, barbell squats are not very skillful. Yeah, they're really fucking skillful. Like it's very, it's a very difficult skill uh, to balance a 200 kilo barbell on your shoulders where all of the weight in the barbell is in the ends of the barbell. And it is at the end of a very long chain of levers in your body on your shoulders where your feet are the only contact point with the ground. Like it is a very challenging motor skill to do a, a heavy barbell squat. And so what you learn as you get more skillful and as Laya Bavoli practiced over the years and decades as she got more skillful is her premotor cortex, you know, the, the part of her brain, the non-conscious part of her brain that organizes her movement, you know, learned the precise, um, you know, sequence of muscle firing and optimal joint angles and stuff for her to produce the most leverage and the most force in throughout that movement, right? So every part of what she does in that movement, like for her to, to do that and be the strongest person in the world at 65 kilos and lift triple and a half of, or triple and a third of her body weight, in order for her to do that, she has to lift incredibly efficiently. And by efficiently, what I mean is producing more output for the same amount of input, right? So given that her muscle can produce X amount of force when it contracts, okay, if she can optimize the precise timing of when that muscle contracts and the precise joint angle at which she, you know, positions herself and stuff, she can get more movement on the bar for the same amount of muscle force production, right? And that is why, uh, you know, elite athletes in any sport that involves strength and power, you know, look so kind of graceful and effortless and whatever is because they are in fact doing the, the most efficient possible version of that movement for their particular body geometry and their particular segment lengths and muscle fiber composition or whatever. So there's a lot of skill involved. And that's the same when you're Pilates. You know, when you first learn, when you first do lunges, okay, you you know, if you're deconditioned, well, you don't have those physiological adaptations to strength training yet. You don't have, you know, larger muscles. You don't have more cross-linking proteins between your muscle fibers. You don't have stiffer tendons yet. So you physiologically, your muscles are producing less force and you're also not moving efficiently in the sense that you are, you know, the, the strict like biomechanical definition of, of efficiently. You're not, you're not taking advantage of passive forces, um, tissue elasticity, recoil, inertia, gravity, you know, optimizing your lever lengths. You're not doing all of those things because you don't yet have the skill of doing those things. And so as you, as you get stronger, part of what happens is you get bigger muscles, you get more cross-linking proteins and you get stiffer tendons and another part of it, and you get better neural activation of those muscles. Another part of it is you learn how to organize your body in a more efficient way. Now, I want to be clear, there is not one 
more efficient way. Like everyone has a different, slightly different, most efficient way. You know, what the way that Usain Bolt runs is not the same way, you know, you should run if you want to run as fast as Usain Bolt, right? Like because Usain Bolt's got one leg a little bit longer than the other, he's got a slight scoliosis. So like his optimal technique now, given that the length of his legs to his torso is not the same as your optimal technique if your legs are shorter or longer or whatever, right? So, yeah, technique is specific to each individual. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not sure where that – We're digressing somewhere, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's this notion that we – we when the, the knees go in the squat, that is because your glutes are failing to activate or they're not strong enough – and, you know, I think just a moment's thought about, you know, watching elite powerlifters do that. It's like, well, you couldn't lift triple your body weight with your glutes turned off. I'm sorry, that's, that's inconceivable to me. It's just not possible. And also the notion that if Lya is the strongest woman in the world in her weight class, surely her glutes can't be weak. You know, that, mm. that it's just not, it just doesn't make sense, right? To say like, oh, her glutes are underactive. It's like, really? <laughs> um, so, 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 so what I think what that does is like, okay, well, in Pilates, we're not lifting one RM, like you say, but what that does is it shows us like at the extreme end of the spectrum, okay, when you're lifting a massive load, your knees can go in and it's like, basically it's inconceivable that your glutes aren't working at that point, right? So that's one thing. It's proof, it's proof that your knees can go in and your glutes be working, right? And it's like, like you said, to get to that level, you have to practice for years, years and years and years and years and years and years and years. She must have done like tens of thousands of repetitions of squats, right? With really heavy loads and her knees going in. And guess what? Her knees are fine, right? So you can squat triple your body weight, okay, with your knees going in without hurting yourself. Like, and you can do that every day for 10 years and still not hurt yourself, right? So because you don't get to do that, without doing it every day for 10 years. Like you don't just, like you say, put a barbell on your back and squat triple your body weight. You start out squatting, you know, five kilos and then you gradually build it up over a decade or more until you can do 200 kilos. And so you only earn that by just doing it a bazillion times. And and if you've done a bazillion times with your knees coming in and your knees are still fine, you're still able to squat more than anyone else in the whole wide world, well, your knees are just fine, thanks. So I think it's proof, even though it's, you know, that's not what we're doing in Pilates, but I think it's like, okay, well, that's like 10 times the load <laughs> we're using in Pilates and her knees are fine mm. and her glutes are fine. So, yeah. So let's talk about some muscles, some other muscles, uh, which certainly this was an idea that knocked my socks off when we first, when, when I first learned it, that from the bottom of the squat, it's not your glutes that are the main force generator. Yeah. Well, what is it then? Drum roll, please. So it's the adductor magnus from memory. Let's see if I can add a drum roll in there. (laughs) (laughs) How was that? (laughs) It was drums. (laughs) Um, All right, so it's adductor magnus. Yeah, so we're at the bottom of the squat, right down the bottom, and uh, I know we've got lots of slides and we talk about this a great deal in the – the anatomy courses and the diploma that again with elite lifters we see this <laughs> being a sardonic here faulty movement pattern where the knees are in as they initiate from the depth of the squat so can you talk about 
adductor magnus and as it relates to force generation from the bottom of a squat because i think that's really powerful for pilates instructors especially interestingly i think one thing i want to want to flag is a, a lot of conversations i've had with students and and elsewhere pilates people is we tend to get very um like front and back centric like we don't think in three dimensions about comp- compound movements it's like it's all quads glutes hip flexors so you know but the dr magnus as the name suggests a huge muscle and so yeah i think it's behooves us as an industry to consider the full circumference of the thigh in terms of this yeah so well i think the reason for that is for that idea of like, you know, thinking just about the front and back is like we're all taught when we're a kid is like, okay, the hip extensors are on the back of the body and the hip flexors are on the front of the body, right? Mm. And mm. so if you're a muscle and you're on the back of the body, you're a hip extensor. And if you're a muscle on the front of the body, you're a hip flexor. But in reality, like things don't break down into these sort of neat sort of categories the way that we like to kind of categorize them. It's like, well, all, you know, all of the abductors are also, except for gluteus minimus, um, all of the abductors are also either flexors or extensors or a bit of both in the case of gluteus medius. Um, and all, all of the adductors, actually their role in hip flexion or extension changes depending on the position of the hip. So uh, all of the adductors adduct the hip, you know, you've got your gracilis and your pectineus and your adductor brevis and adductor longus and adductor magnus and, uh, you know, all of them adduct. Uh, many of them externally rotate and, you know, m- many of us know that already, but the thing is what I think a lot of people don't know is that as you flex your hip, like when you go sort of beyond 90 degrees of hip flexion, the more you flex your hip, the more the adductor magnus in particular has a very powerful uh, moment uh, um, to produce hip extension. And so in a neutral hip, the adductor magnus doesn't really extend the hip. Like it's just it's just an adductor, basically. But at the more you flex your hip, and particularly past 90 degrees, the adductor magnus becomes a, quite a powerful hip extensor so when you're at the bottom of a squat, if your if your knees, if sorry, if your hip is flexed like more than ninety degrees, your adductor magnus is probably the most powerful hip extensor, more powerful than glutes in that in that particular position. And so you know, and if you've done deep lunges in on a reformer class, and then the next day you're in a thysosaur, well, that's why, right? Adductor magnus is a very important muscle for extending the hip from the bottom of a deep lunge or a deep squat. Uh, and so the thing is, all right, so now we get back to that initial logic that seemed to make sense when we thought about it. It's like, okay, the glute max is the major muscle that lifts you out and extends your hip. Okay, so when you're standing up out of a squat or a lunge, you're extending your hip. So the glute max is doing most of that. And the glute max is an abductor and an external rotator. So it pulls your knee out, right? So if your knee's going in, that must be because glute max is turning off or it's weak, Right. But what we don't think about is, well, the in the same position, coming out of a deep squat, the adductor magnus is also a very powerful hip extensor, probably a more powerful hip extensor in that particular joint angle. And it is working really freaking hard as you stand up out of a squat, and it is adducting the leg 
right? So what if your knees came in, not because your glutes were weak, but because your adductor magnus is the main prime mover of the, of the hip in that joint angle, and it's just pulling your leg in, doing its job? You know, like what if that was what was happening? You know, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> wouldn't that be cool? Yeah. You know, yeah, and that's and so, not the same thing. And 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 the so and just going back to that idea of muscles co-contracting, you know, that's it's not by definition. Therefore, oh, so a doctor Magnus does it, but your glutes are switched off, and that's okay. They're going to both be firing, yes, and creating tension through the system. So well, if your knees are not smashing into each other, right, right. In other words, if you're not in uncontrolled adduction, maximal adduction, right. And your adductors are firing very strongly, which they are in the bottom of a squat. Mm. Well, by definition, your abductors must also be firing because if your abductors weren't firing at all, they'll totally relax and you fire your adductors, well, you're just going to adduct, right? So if your knees don't bash into each other, that means there is something happening in your abductors, right? They're producing some amount of force. So, so all right, so that's one idea is that, you know, the notion that adductor magnus is actually a very powerful hip extensor in the bottom of a squat or lunge or footwork, um, and that it produces a hip extension moment. And a moment is just a force multiplied by the lever arm, by the length, the distance from the force from the, the fulcrum, and and that it is an adductor. So if it activates powerfully, it might cause some adduction at the hip. You know, just like – and it's weird that we think about it back to front. Like we think about, okay, if the glutes activate and your hip abducts, that's good, Right. But if your ductor magnus activation hip adducts, that's bad. Why? If your hip abducts, doesn't that mean a ductor magnus isn't activating and it's weak? Mm, mm. You know, it's like, why, why do we have it, you know, one way but not the other way? So that's one thing. The other thing is, well, we might be uh, optimizing the length tension relationship of our glutes, right? So what, we, what I mean by that is we know that muscles are strongest in their mid-range. Right? So if a muscle is in a maximally shortened position or maximally lengthened position, it doesn't produce as much force, anywhere near as much force as it does in its mid-range. Right? And we all know this from like, I don't know, um, if, you, if you do like a um, teaser, okay, when you lift both legs right, or let's say, um, not teaser, uh, even better, hip twist with with uh, arms stretched, right? So you're sitting on the mat, hands are behind you on the mat, shoulder distance apart or a bit wider, legs are straight and you lift your legs up as high as you can, right? Unless you've got like decades of dancing or gymnastics behind you, right? That is freaking torture on your quads, right? Why is it torture on your quads? Because it's actually not torture on all of your quads, it's just torture on your rectus femoris, which is one of your quadriceps, which is a two-joint muscle, it's a hip flexor plus a knee extensor, right? And so in that position, in the hip twist with your legs up, the rectus femoris is maximally shortened, so it's very weak in that position. It's not able to produce a lot of force, and that's why exercise is really, really freaking hard, unless you've practiced it for decades. So when muscles are extremely short or extremely long, they're very weak. Right, relatively, they can't produce much force, and there's there's reasons for that which we won't go into. But so muscles are strongest in the mid range. Now, if you want to produce maximum force, you know, for minimum effort, you know, in other words, be efficient, be efficient as you're standing yep. up out of a squat, you would want to keep your muscles, your major force producing muscles, as close as possible to their mid range throughout the movement, right? Because that would mean that you could produce more force. 
you know, from that same muscle. So as you stand up out of a squat, okay, your glutes are in mid-range at about roughly kind of sort of, um, you know, 30, 40 degrees of hip flexion, okay? So when your leg is kind of, you know, diagonal to your body sort of, not not at 90 degrees. And so as you as you go beyond that, you know, up or down, your glutes, you know, lengthen or shorten, you know, beyond mid-range. And so as you stand up out of that position, as your glutes uh, shorten, right, as you're standing up, okay, your glutes are getting shorter, shorter, shorter. Well, if you adduct your hips, okay, that slightly lengthens your glutes, right, which means you might keep them closer to their mid-range and able to produce more force. Right? So you might be optimizing the length tension relationship, which says that you know muscles produce more force in the mid-range, okay, by adducting your hip just at the point where the glute is kind of you know shortened, basically. And also, coincidentally, at the sticking spot, you know, when the legs are roughly parallel to the floor, okay, where you need more force production because leverage is working against you at that posi- position in the squat that or lunge that if you optimize the length tension relationship of your glutes in that position you produce more force to get you past the sticking spot so that's another po- you know i don't do i have like a paper that shows that that is true no but it's just like thinking about the anatomy of it that is a plausible you know a plausible idea yeah so it could be could be a ductor magnus firing that pulls your knee in okay could be you're just optimizing the length tension relationship of your glutes and the glutes are working awesome. In fact, they're working even better because your knee's going in and you're optimizing that length, length tension relationship. Or it could be you're pre-stretching the glutes, right? So just say, you know, if you want to throw, if I said to you, like throw something, right, that you would automatically draw your arm back before you would throw it, right? Or if I said, you know, jump as high as you can, right, you would automatically squat down a little bit before you jumped up, Right. And we do that to pre-stretch our muscles, right? So when we pre-stretch a muscle, it produces more force than when we don't pre-stretch it, right? You can jump higher if you squat down first compared to if you just jump without squatting. You can throw further if you re- if you draw your arm back first than you can if you don't, right? So when we pre-stretch a muscle just for a moment before we exert it, before we contract it, we produce more force. So just before the sticking spot, if your knees go in and you pre-stretch the glutes, then bam, they can produce more force and explode through that sticking spot. Again, don't have evidence to say that that's true, but just it's plausible based on the, you know, based on well, it's based on our understanding of biomechanics and, and muscle physiology. I mean, that one's so inherent to movement that it's absurd to think of it any other way. Like, you know, throw this tennis ball at me, but don't pull your arm back. Right. <laughs> you know, jump up in the air, but don't bend down first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's there's so many re- – I mean, have we got time for any more reasons? Well, we've got time. I suppose just to – like what we've said is – well, hopefully what we've illustrated is that there's a multitude of reasons not to worry about whether your knees come in at the bottom of a squat. Like we don't know exactly – you just said there's a bunch of possibilities there and there's some evidence that we can refer to. But the takeaway is for for the last hour or so, we've been talking about reasons why 
48 minutes. 48 minutes. You don't need to worry if someone's knees move in anywhere in their squat pattern or lunge pattern. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if we've if we've established that beyond a reasonable doubt yet. I think okay. we can look at Lyra Bavoli and go, okay, well, if she can do it in lifting triple body weight, it's probably fine for me on a reformer on a half spring. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and that's just kind of like a common sense, you know, <laughs> approach. It's like, okay, yeah, it's probably pretty safe, uh, but I don't think we've established beyond a doubt that it's like totally safe in any position for anyone. Um, and I think that these these what I what I what I do hope that people, if you're listening to this, take away from the conversation so far is that the assumption that if your knees go in, it's because your glutes aren't doing their thing. That is not an obvious conclusion, right? There's there's lots of other potential reasons that are not that that have nothing to do with you having weak or underactive glutes. Why your knees might go in in the squat, and you know, just assuming that because your knees went in, your glutes aren't doing their thing. That's probably not, probably not, not a high percentage assumption. Hmm. You know, um, can I can I just hit a couple more of those reasons why your glutes might go in, and then I want to talk about the why we know it's safe for your knees to go in. Sure, great. Um, all right. So the, the 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 next reason I've got on my list of uh, why your knees might go in in a squat that has nothing to do with having weak glutes is because you might be storing elastic energy in your iliotibial band. And your IT band is a tough um, sheet of connective tissue or a band of connective tissue is probably a better word for it, that joins your your pelvis and your knee, basically. Uh, your glutes um, insert into it. Your TFL inserts into it. Uh, it, it also... Um, inserts into the femur full length, it inserts into the patella, into the um, fibula, you know, like it basically inserts everywhere. Um, and it, it we sounds do- sounds pretty interesting, Raf, do you reckon you could do a 90-minute lecture on that? <laughs> I, I do do a 90-minute lecture <laughs> on it in the diploma. Um, uh, all, the, all about the IT band. In fact, we can't even cover it all in 90 minutes. No, There's it's, so that's much a really cramped about, lecture. Yeah, yeah, so much to know about the IT band. I'd have um, to, I have to say, I think as the per, I just it's, in terms of feedback from students within the diploma, that lecture is the one that gets. It's, it's got to be top three for transformational pieces of content that people are most blown away by. That in that, like a top three changes their paradigm, changes their universe. But they they come out and it, you know. So I huh. I still love listening to that lecture. What's 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 the what are the big bullet points? Do you think for people? Uh, well, you pretty much just ran through them, like just right. the fact that it's connected the full length of the thigh right. of the femur, uh, its various insertions and origins, the fact that the glutes and the TFL, it's the common it, – the, actually, if we had to say it in one sentence, it would probably be that the ITB is the common tendon of the glutes and the TFL. Yeah, I love I love that idea. And then we and we think about, um, you know, say the biceps muscle in your arm as a muscle, right? It's it, And it, it – it has, but we call it biceps. Bi means two, seps means head, so it's a two-headed muscle. And the reason we call it biceps or two heads is because it's got a single common tendon which inserts into your radius in, in below the elbow. Then it has two sets of muscle fibers that are distinct from each other. You know, they're in separate fascial sheaths. And then each of those uh, sets of muscle fibers, each of the heads, has its own tendon at the 
the proximal end, like at the shoulder end, and one of the tendons inserts into the coracoid process of the scapula, and one of the tendons one of the tendons inserts into the supraglenoid tubercle above the shoulder joint. Right, so you've got two distinct sets of fibers with their own tendons on the shoulder, and then they coalesce into a single tendon below the elbow, and that's the biceps muscle, right? But we call it the biceps muscle, not like the long head of biceps and then this other muscle called the short head of biceps, right? But then we've got the TFL and the gluteus maximus, right? And they both insert into the iliotibial tract. And in fact, over 80% of the fibers of gluteus maximus insert into the IT band, like the the vast majority of gluteus maximus inserts into the IT band, only about 20% of the fibers insert directly into the femur. So, and, and a hundred percent of the fibers of the, of the, uh, TFL, TFL insert into the IT band, right? So, uh, and now that the IT band then inserts down below the knee, okay, into the, the tibia and fibula. Um, and so in a very real way, the TFL and the gluteus maximus are a single two headed muscle, right? With a single common tendon that inserts below the knee and two tendons that insert at the hip, right? Or at the pelvis. And so, yeah, but we never think of glute max and TFL as like the same muscle. As your hip biceps. Right, the biceps of the hip. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we never think of that, but it's like, it's like, well, how is it different? Hmm. You know? Um, anyway, so we digress. <laughs> Again, yeah, we digress. Um, but so, so the IT band, we know when people run, um, most of the energy – um, for running actually doesn't come from muscle contraction. It comes from storing and releasing of elastic energy in the IT band and the Achilles tendon and the patella tendon, right? So basically as you land in when you run, you basically isometrically tense your quads and your calf muscles and your glutes, okay? You isometrically tense those muscles. So you tense them, but you don't shorten them or lengthen them. And then as you land, the, the, the momentum of you landing stretches your Achilles tendon, stretches your patella tendon in your knee and stretches your IT band, okay, exactly like stretching an elastic band, right? And as you stretch it and pull the ends of that elastic band apart, it stores energy. There is now energy in that band. If you let go with one of your hands, it's going to snap and the energy, the potential energy, will be converted into kinetic energy and it will move, right? Or do work. And so that's exactly what happens when you run is you store elastic energy in your Achilles tendon, your patella tendon, and your IT band, in your iliotibial band. So as you stretch or tension, means the same thing, the IT band, you store elastic energy in it. You know, you put it on stretch. And then when you unstretch it, it releases that energy, right? And you do work. You know, you, you move your joints. And so as you adduct your hip, your knees go in, okay, halfway up a squat, you are stretching your glute max and your TFL, the two-headed muscle of the knee and the hip, okay, because they're both abductors, okay, so as you go into adduction, they're on stretch, they're lengthening, the IT band is on tension, but as you're adducting, if your glutes are tensing, okay, the glutes aren't maybe lengthening, maybe the IT band is lengthening and glutes are working isometrically. Another theory, okay? Don't have anything to prove it. Um, so if you're storing elastic energy in your IT band just before the sticking spot, and then you get to the sticking spot where your thighs are parallel to the floor and you've got the least amount of leverage and gravity is working against you with the greatest force, 
and all of a sudden you go, great, but I've got this this elastic energy stored in my IT band. I'm going to, you know, go, go, magic, magic powers, and bam, out comes the energy out of your IT band that propels you through the sticking spot in the squat, just like when we run. I'm, you know, obviously it's not exactly the same because we're not running in a deep squat position, but in principle, you know, the, the basic principle is the same, that you're storing and releasing energy from your IT band. So that's another reason why your your knees might go in in a squat and why Lyra Bavoli's knees might go in a squat, okay, <laughs> to actually produce more force and move more efficiently, taking advantage of tissue elasticity and recoil and momentum and all of those things. And that's part of the skill that she's maybe learned over decades is the precise right time and amount to let her knees come in so that she can store the right amount of elastic energy in her TFL uh, sorry, in a IT band to push her up out of that sticking spot. So that's another reason. It's elastic energy storage in the IT band. It's not just for foam rolling people. It's for lifting you out of a squat. Um, <laughs> uh, there, there's 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 one more there's one more reason. Can can we go one more reason, or do you think oh, we've we've laid it on thick enough already? No, no. Let's go one more. Um. So the final reason is to do with uh, the horizontal distance between your knee and your hip, right? So we all know, and you know, I've been talking about moment arm, right? And maybe that sounds like sciencey and co- complicated, but it really is such a simple concept, right? If you hold a weight in your hand, right? Hold a five kilo dumbbell in your hand in your mind's eye, right? Hold it right up by your shoulder, like hold that weight so it's touching your torso, right? Now reach your arm out horizontally in front of you with that weight in your hand. What happened? It got heavier, right? It weighs more. It produces, it exerts more force on your shoulder and your torso and whatever when your arm is out straight in front of you than it does when your hand is by your torso, when the weight is by your torso, right? The, the, what happened? The dumbbell didn't get heavier. It still weighs five kilos when it's out at the arm's length, right? Gravity didn't change, okay? What changed was the horizontal distance between the fulcrum, your shoulder, and the weight, right? So the the greater the horizontal distance between the load and the fulcrum, the more leverage that load has, right? And we use the term moment arm to express that. And moment arm just means the weight multiplied by the distance. That's all it means, right? So if that weight is twice as far away, it weighs twice as much in effect, right? On At your shoulder joint, right? And so if you, uh, when you're, when you're in a squat or a lunge and your thigh is horizontal, okay, your thigh is parallel to the floor, there is the greatest horizontal distance between your knee and your hip, right? When you're standing with your legs straight, there is no horizontal distance between your knee and your hip. Like your knee and your hip are, and you are stacked, right? Neither one is in front or behind of the other, right? But as you go down into a squat, when your thigh is parallel to the floor, your knee and your hip are as far apart horizontally as they're ever going to get, right? And so that means that there is the, you know, it's like holding, you're now holding the dumbbell out at arm's length, right? Except you're holding it at thigh's length, right? So your quads are now working against a much longer lever arm, right? Your glutes are working against a much longer lever arm. This is the least mechanically advantaged position for both of those muscles, right? So 
just imagine you're a person who has longer femurs relative to your torso, right? You're a tall person, right? Well, you've got even more mechanical disadvantage there, right? Because you've got even longer femurs, you've got a longer lever arm, therefore your quads are producing even less force relative to the lever arm and same as your glutes, right? Now, if you if you stand with your, uh, you know, if you go into a deep squat, so your thighs are parallel to the floor, and then you adduct your hips so your knees come towards each other, okay, when viewed from the side, that makes your femurs get shorter. Your like knees your thighs just got shorter. Yeah. Your thighs just got shorter. Your knees are now horizontally closer to your hips, right? Less moment arm. Right? The you're now holding the weight not at arm's length, but you've bent your elbow halfway in. It's now easier. Right? So if if we go through that sticking spot where we're at the we have the least mechanical advantage, right? We've got the longest seesaw to pull against. Or if we just shorten the seesaw a bit, we can move through that spot, right? So that, it might be a really clever strategy to minimize the, the, the moment arm that your quads and glutes are working against as you come through that hard part of the squat. Yeah. So if you're, if, if the, if the length of your femur the, the, when it's at its longest, you have the least access to the muscles. It would seem to be a good movement strategy if you could find a way to make the femur shorter at that moment and right. apply it. Ideally, we'd have like telescoping femurs. Yeah. Because you know? <laughs> sometimes you want them long. You know, yeah. like when, you, when you're standing at, in the back of the concert and you want to see people's heads <laughs> yeah. in front of you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or when you go on that blind date and you want to dinner a man, you want to be tall. I don't think women generally care how tall they are as much as men do. I think for men, it's height is a thing, don't you think? Maybe, but I, I've uh, actually maybe never thought it, much about it. Yeah, no, maybe that's bullshit because I look at, um, like, I'm just thinking, like, I, you know, when occasionally when I'm on an aeroplane or something and I read a magazine, because the only time I read magazines is when I'm on an aeroplane, they always have these ads for men's shoes that make you look taller. Do they? Yeah. There's these invisible shoes that don't even have like high heels, but they've got the, they're built up inside the shoe, like an inch to make you taller. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) we digress. But but then I'm thinking like, yeah, but then what about high heels? Duh, women wear high heels like Mm. way more than men do. So maybe it's a thing (laughs) for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, any so, any sociologists uh, out there who know the answer to that, please let us know. Get in touch yeah. and let me know. So you, you we've you've talked us through a whole bunch of things, uh, and you've re- repeatedly contextualised them against. Sorry, I've forgotten the name of this elite power liar. Uh, live, liar. liar. Yeah, and it, you know all like so. Just that going back to that last idea of you know okay so. You you could be we could say that by bringing your knees in, you're shortening the lever arm, the moment arm. Yeah. Um, well, that and as you said, you know, there's going to be a sweet spot where if you do that, you kind of suck the best possible um, help out of that that you can, and that that would, you know, we just sort of roll through those ideas you've talked about. That skill would roll together with the skill of how you 
tension, the glutes versus the adductor magnus, and all of these things that we've talked through theoretically, they're too complicated, they're too multifactorial, they're, they're all happening at the same time while you're trying to move weight. They're not things that someone like Leia would be thinking about. They've just evolved no. by practice over the thousands of repetitions that they become skills that she probably doesn't even know she has. Probably no one ever cued her to think about knees coming in to shorten the lever. It's just they've evolved by her system solving the problem of moving load. And I guess what I wanted to, what I want to talk, so this has been something that's emerged for me over the years of teaching movement is, um, humans are amazing at solving those problems. They don't have to be world-class elite powerlifters. You know, you just give them time and space and a load that's appropriate and encouragement, and they will find their efficient movement in that place. And if you just, if we just step back from this position of there being a correct way of doing things that we're supposed to know that we somehow download on that body in front of us, and if we just create an environment where they can do load that's challenging, challenging but doable, so they pull up okay and they come back for the next session and they repeat that over time, they will find and develop their own skill in that movement and become more efficient. And you don't actually have to explain any of these things to them, which, you know, it took me so long to accept that. But the more I do it with clients, the more wonderful I find the experience of teaching. But the paradox is the less that I do as an instructor. Isn't it amazing that the, that as you start to understand the the incredible complex symphony of, you know, control that your brain exerts on your body as you do something as seemingly simple as stand up out of a fucking squat, you know, I mean, let alone complex moves, <laughs> but, you know, something as simple as standing up out of a squat, the in unbelievable complexity and the fine-tuned, you know, precision of how you position your knee relative to the moment arm and the pre-stretch on the glutes and the tension in the IT band and the function of adductor magnus and all of those things, right? Like how incredibly complex and marvelous that is. And then we come along with this like childishly simplistic notion of like, oh, your glutes aren't working. It's like, it's like bashing freaking you know, Mozart over the head with a two by four, you know, it's like, it's like, I'm sorry, that is like one, one thousandth of what your brain is already calculating, you know, to do this movement with perfection, you mm. know, and for some of us, that perfection is going to look like knees coming in because of our particular geometry in our pelvis and our femur and our hip socket and, you know, the particular, you know, relative percentage of fast twitch fibers in our quads versus our glutes versus our adductor magnus and the um, the percentage of our 1RM load that we're lifting and how fast we're moving and how deep we went into – like there are so many variables, right, how relatively fatigued each muscle is when you start the movement. Like there are so many things that go into contributing to, you know, what each person's optimal strategy is for any given movement. I just think it's ludicrously, you know, simplistic to think that it's a single factor. Oh, it's your glutes, 
and in a squat, the only thing that matters is your glutes, mm. right? It's like it's just like now. And hopefully, if you're still with us, dear listener, and you've been on this journey, and you're like, oh yeah, the ductor magnus, the pre-stretch on the glutes, the IT band, elastic tension, the moment arm, and the horizontal distance from the knee to the hips. Like it's so complex, right? How naive and simplistic to think about it as just like glutes good, everything else bad. You know, it's like it's just like seems like ridiculous. I hope it seems ridiculous. Um, there's there's a study. Uh, this is an awesome one. It's just a um, a, a little um, bit of fun. It's called um, "Steps Toward the Validation of the Trendelenburg Test: The Effect of Experimentally Reduced Hip Abductor Muscle Function on Frontal Plane Mechanics." Oh my god, these people need some help with their titles. <laughs> yeah, they've got some branding issues. <laughs> Fuck's sake, people! Like, call it something sexy. You know, <laughs> stick a pin in your butt. That's what something like that. I don't know. Um, uh, so basically, what they did is they, they stood people on one leg uh, in a lab, and that's the Trendelenburg test. And what they test is when you stand on one leg, does your knee go in? Does your knee go in? And do you lean out over that leg? So the Trendelenburg test is where basically, if your glutes are quote not working, okay, when you stand on one leg, the knee goes in because your glutes are weak or underactive or whatever. And what they were testing was. Uh, well, I wonder if that is true. I wonder if that is because your glutes are underactive or whatever. And so what they did was they stood people on one leg and they measured exactly how much their knee came in with photos and light reflectors and all of that kind of stuff. And then they gave them a lovely injection of lidocaine, which is a local anesthetic, like what you get when you go to the dentist that makes your jaw go completely numb for like three hours afterwards and you when you're talking after you've been to the dentist. Um and they injected that into the superior gluteal nerve, which is the nerve that innervates the gluteus maximus, right? And sorry, the gluteus medius, apologies, not the gluteus maximus, the gluteus medius. And so they completely paralyzed these people's gluteus medius, hmm. right? Just like your lips are paralyzed after you've been to the dentist for, you know, uh, for a couple of hours. And so they, they injected lidocaine into these people's gluteus medius into their superior gluteal nerve. Then they retested their Trendelenburg test, right? And what they wanted to find was, now that we've completely paralyzed the gluteus medius, which is the major hip abductor, right, do we see the knee go in more? And guess what they found? I'm guessing no, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No difference, right? No difference. So if you have a if you're literally paralyzed in the gluteus medius, right, it doesn't affect how much your knee goes in. So it's like, well, does your knee going in mean you've got weak glutes then? You know, it's like it's just not the same thing, right? It's mm. not caused by that. Um, so that's one thing. And then the last thing I just want to touch on is the injury, you know, the the concern that people have about on knees going in is dangerous for your knee. And for many years, we did think that uh, there was a increased risk for anterior cruciate ligament injury, okay, when people did like what's called a drop jump. So basically you uh, you stand on a box or a step and then you drop, you, you jump down onto the floor and you can either land on a single leg, you know, or you single leg depth jump, they call it, or you can land on both legs, right? And so what we thought for, for the, you know, the last you know, multiple years was that when you did that drop jump, a single leg drop jump, if you land on one leg, if your knee goes inwards a lot in that test, that was, we did think that was predictive of future ACL anterior cruciate ligament injury hmm. in the knee, right? 
So there was a correlation between that, but it was never a really strong correlation. And there was always a lot of overlap between people like whose knees went in a little bit or a medium amount and they never got injured. And then people whose knees didn't go in at all and they did get injured. But then it was always just a little bit skewed towards people whose knees went in more, you know, seems to be injured. But uh, there was a systematic review that came out in 2019, uh, no, 2020, called uh, Do Knee Abduction Kinematics and Kinetics Predict Future Anterior Cruciate Ligament Injury Risk, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Prospective Studies. Again, I'd like to volunteer to offer some help with these people's uh, titling of their papers. I think they can get a lot more page views if they used a sexier title. Um, but anyway, knee abduction kinematics and kinetics. So kin, uh, kinematics and kinetics are just like the forces and the, the movement, you know, so the forces on the joint and the actual movement of the joint. Um, do they predict future anterior cruciate ligament injury risk? So, of course, when they talk about knee abduction, that also involves adduction because the more abduction you have, the less adduction you have, right? So it's kind of like we're measuring the same thing, but just from opposite ends of the measuring tape. Yep, yep. And so what they found in this study by Kronstrom, Kronstrom et al., 2020, was, quote, contrary to clinical opinion, our findings indicate that knee abduction kinematics and kinetics during weight-bearing activities may not be risk factors for future ACL injury. Knee abduction of greater magnitude, blah, 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 blah. Right. So basically they said, well, we didn't study this and we didn't study that. But everything that we did study, we found no correlation between knee kinetics and kinematics in abduction adduction, uh, and future uh, ACL injury risk. Um, here's the first Power of the first sentence of their discussion, quote, the results from this systematic review and meta-analysis revealed no association between baseline knee abduction kinematics or kinetics during vertical drop jumps or squats and the risk of sustaining a future ACL injury, end quote. So, um, yeah, that's the latest systematic review and meta-analysis that we have on this topic, and they found no association. Hmm. And they specifically looked at squats. So just to so think that through a little bit. We no, we do, we we do know. Yeah, we do know that the position of greatest vulnerability of the ACL involves abduction. It does involve ad adduction of sorry, the hip. Adduction. Oh, sorry, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. You're correct. Abduction of the hip, internal rotation of the hip, external rotation, of the and kind of knee valgus. So it's that yeah. knee valgus position that is the common thing that we think. Yeah. All right. So just think through out loud for us. What you know in terms of what does ensure an ACL, it's a position that does involve the knee seemingly being in relative to the line of the hip to ankle. Right? Yes. So the knees, yeah. But well, actually, uh, actually, uh, it's the knees out, but it's in valgus, and it's like I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to explain that visually, you know, on in through the medium of radio. But um, I'll I'll pop a study in the show notes, which basically is a fantastic study where they um, the researchers reviewed footage of professional soccer matches 
where players had injured their ACLs, you know, they were subsequently diagnosed as having ruptured their ACLs. And they actually went back and reviewed the footage and isolated the single frame of video when that person uh, sustained that injury. So they've, they've mm. got like 273 or something photos of people in the moment of sustaining an ACL injury. And they're basically all in exactly the same position. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so if you're, if you're interested, like what's the position where you want to injure your ACL, like go look at these photos and then if you want to injure your ACL, do that. I'm just joking. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> This is not medical advice. Okay, great. So then, and and what the and the so the the, the two second takeaway from that is that the position of vulnerability for the ACL, which is also under uh, b- ballistic force, like it's not just it's just standing in the position, but you're in the in the moment trying to change direction rapidly. That's that is not that is nothing like doing a squat where your knee comes in. Right. So if you want to injure your ACL, what you should do is get on a soccer field or some other grass sport where you have um, like spikes on the bottom of your shoes so your feet don't, don't pivot very well. And then you should run at maximum speed and then change direction at maximum speed and at the same time have someone tackle you from the side and whack you on the outside of the knee. Right? That's a really good way to injure your ACL. Now, if your knees go in when you squat, there's probably like one fiftieth of the amount of force on your ACL in that situation compared to the actual injury mechanism. Like people don't injure their ACLs doing lunges in Pilates class. They injure them when they're doing a maximal speed direction change. Their foot is planted on the ground with spikes so the foot doesn't pivot, but the, the torso pivots. So mm. then the knee rotates and goes into like – Actually, the hip is in abduction, but the knee is in valgus, and the knee is externally rotated, and the knee is about 80 to 90% straight. It's only a little, little, little bit bent. Um, when most people's knees go into adduction in a squat, it's like down at, in the bottom of part of the squat, right? Now, actually, the ACL's got very little tension on it in that position. The ACL yeah. position of maximum tension on the anterior cruciate ligament is when the knee is almost straight. So it's like, yeah, the whole thing kind of causally now that, now that, I mean, I was, I was with that literature. I was, you know, following the literature that said, you know, avoid adduction in a drop jump, you know, or that correlates with injury risk. So I followed that and I was like teaching people to push their knees out and all the rest of it. But, uh, it turns out that that's not necessarily, um, you know, the most important thing in preventing, uh, ACL injuries. Hmm. So there you go. So there are many reasons why your knees might go inwards in a squat, which have nothing to do with whether your glutes are weak or underactive. And I just want to say, like, these words, underactive and overactive, like those sort of, I don't know, is that an adverb or whatever, like the under and the over part? It's like Mm. compared to what? Compared to what, yeah. Like where you say the same with overpronation, Right. Or what it's like compared to what? You know, do we have a gold standard that says here's the um, here's the quote optimal amount of this thing, you know, pronation or adduction or whatever? It's like, well, ha- compared to what gold standard that is well established and we know is optimal for all people? You know, it's like, and the answer is, dear listener, compared to no gold standard because we don't have one, 
there is no such thing as the widely agreed optimal amount of pronation or hip abduction or whatever. And it's not based, there is nothing based on any scientific consensus on that. So the, the whole notion of like over or under is like highly just subjective and uh, it's a value judgment. It's not a, mm. it's not an objective fact about the universe. It's just us, you know, like putting a, trying to make something sound bad or good, you mm. know. Um, so anyway, sorry, <laughs> got carried away there. <laughs> so there are a plethora of reasons why your knees might go in in a squat. Um, they have nothing to do with whether your glutes are, are active or underactive or overactive or weak or strong or whatever. Uh, and they might include uh, optimizing the length tension relationship of the glutes, might include storing elastic energy in the IT band. It might include just your adductor magnus doing its thing. It might include um, decreasing the moment arm um, that your quads and glutes have to work against to come out of the sticking spot in the squat. Um, yeah, there, there are other reasons that we didn't go into to do with relative femur length to torso length. So you might be able to optimize your torso lean and minimize the moment arm for the torso there as well by shortening the lever in your femur. But basically, suffice it to say, it's incredibly, fantastically, marvelously complex symphony of movement instructions that your motor cortex is sending to your body and the the notion that it's like we should just like squeeze the glutes and all will be well with the world is like just you know ridiculously naively simplistic i think and um we need to to let go of that and and understand that yes there is incredible skill involved in in any human movement over time we build this skill and humans are learning machines like you said heath and that when just simply left to our own devices, we can't help but get better at doing things. Like if you just do it a lot, you will get better at it. You can't not. Like it's not possible. There's studies I've looked at factory workers doing like extremely simple tasks like, you know, lifting a box and putting it on a production line or whatever, who've been working in the factory for 20 plus years, they are still getting more skillful at that movement. Hmm. You know, like – it's just humans are just learning machines. And if you just do a movement often enough, you will get better at it. And better means more efficient, like doing getting more output for the same amount of effort, you know. Um, so, yeah, so humans are great. We're unbelievably clever. You don't need to consciously control or instruct people. And the notion that there's one ideal way that everyone should move is crazy. And and by the way, dear listener, also I just want to don't want to give you the impression that we're saying that everyone's knees should go in in a squat. That's not what we're saying. Because that would be just like like running exactly from one side of the boat to teach. the other, right? <laughs> it's like we're not saying there's one right way. We're saying depending on your relative femur length and hip joint socket depth and femoral neck angle and muscle fiber composition and muscle insertion distance from the joint fulcrum and blah, 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 all of these other things, there's going to be some optimal alignment and technique for you, but I don't know what the fuck it is and no one else does either. And the only person that can know what that is, is your premotor cortex. After you do 10,000 plus reps of that movement, you'll get really fucking good at it. And you'll notice that you do it a certain way. And that is your optimal movement pattern dear listener. Mic drop. Yeah. Good talk. Thanks, Raf.
after two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in uh, link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.